0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM, and you could be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I would very much like to welcome my first guest to the show. It is a pleasure to have her on the line from Winnipeg. And also a pleasure because I've been wanting to get her on the show for some time. Uh, it's someone you may be very familiar with. You may uh, hear her uh, weekly on the CBC Radio 1. She is the host of Unreserved. It is Rosanna Deerchild on the line. Thanks for joining us.
1: Well, good day. Thank you for having me, David.
0: It's a pleasure and it's so nice to hear your voice. Uh you know, one on one. We always hear you talking to us uh, from the uh from the radio of course with your your show and congratulations on that. Thank you. And you've been hosting that for how how long now?
1: Uh this we're going to be uh this is our 5th season and um nationally mm. and and we had another extra year regionally. So technically 6 years.
0: Okay. That's great. And so, you know, the other thing, Rosanna, is that uh, you're you, you not just known uh, for your work with, with Unreserved and, and as a radio host. Um, you are, of course, Cree, you're, you're an author, and uh, you've That's been correct. in the broadcasting industry for about 20 years. Uh, mm-hmm. You and I both worked at APTN, I think, around the same time. We
1: did we did <laughs> I don't think
0: we ever worked together but we were there at the same time in different parts same time. of the country we or so yeah yeah and, uh, and of course uh, when you were working at ABTN, was that I, I, I'm sorry I can't remember what you were doing there at the time.
1: Oh my, I did a whole bunch of things at APTN, of course. um, As you know, APTN was created in 1999, Mm -hmm. soon after we started creating the news Mm -hmm. um, program, which would become APTN National News. I was one of the original group that were uh, collected from across Canada by, uh, of course, the amazing Dan David, Mm -hmm. um, and tasked us with putting together a, a news program by, for, and about Indigenous people which at the time was considered crazy. People were like, that's never going to happen. You can't do that. And we were like, well, watch this. And then we did it. So um, it's, And, of course, the, the, the creation of APTN National News um, has changed the face of Indigenous news reporting in many, many ways. Um, so, of course, I, I'm, I'm very proud to have been part of that group and, and, and equally proud to see it recently celebrating its 20 years Absolutely. on the air.
0: Yeah, it's great. So...
1: Amazing accomplishment for them,
0: right? And then, of course, uh, you moved on. Uh, you you, uh, you you worked with Global. You've worked with uh, with other uh, other uh, broadcast uh, uh, organizations.
1: Mhm, mhm. Um, I went on, of course. My love, of course, was indigenous media, so I really tried to focus on indigenous made media. Um, I went on to work for some newspapers um, I did do a column in the Sun Chain, which was very interesting um, <laughs> uh, I worked at NCI FM, which is another indigenous radio station, mm. um, probably cousins to your own, <laughs> and uh, I created some programming for them some 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 talk shows for them, um, which back in the day you know was fairly was fairly early early days you know to be having those that kind of voice, that kind of platform. Um, so, uh, you know, it was—it's great to, to have brought those conversations together. By, for, and again about Indigenous people. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the work I, I, I continued on throughout my career. Now I'm doing it here at the CBC on a national level, which is amazing. Um, our show is the first uh, uh, talk show of this kind um, for 30 years. Um, the last being, of course, bernalda Wheeler. And uh, on her show, so there has it's been pretty quiet on the national airwaves for for the for that amount of time, but now we're back and uh, making spaces uh, creating uh, creating that 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 radio space for indigenous story and, and culture and people
0: you know it's interesting you mention uh you know unreserved because uh, in the last couple of months, I had a relative. On the show uh, from mm-hmm. Ottawa, uh, who worked at the Museum of Civilization in repatriation and we were actually talking about um, uh, Remembrance Day uh, because mm-hmm. his father was in in the in the um, the armed forces, but he also served and worked at the cBC <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. oh. as a
0: radio host, believe it or wow. not and it was the initial the in, and he brought this up specifically, saying it was the first version of the show that you now host oh yeah yeah I, i'm oh. sorry i can't remember what that was called but uh, uh the that yes he was telling me that uh, and i i was stunned i was going wow uh that uh, yeah. a relative of mine and his of course <laughs> uh started that uh, years ago and there's actually a picture of him at this in a cbc booth uh very he, cool yeah it was very cool so
1: everybody always has a cousin. <laughs> you
0: got that right as you, as you always <laughs> tell people every week on your show, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, Rosanna, what, what do you enjoy the most about what you do weekly on, on your program?
1: Um, well, you know, as I said, it's, a, it's always been a passion of mine to tell an indigenous story, to make that space for indigenous people, because I think it's really important, uh, particularly now in the history of uh, what we now call Canada, mm. that we, we, we always strive to close that. To close that gap, to, clo- to, to educate people, to, to have discussions with people, um, to bring attention to people who are doing the work on the front lines or who are doing work in the back rooms, um, that they are Indigenous and that uh, uh, that they want what's best. For their children, mm-hmm. just as everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's my favorite thing to do is just to talk to everyday Indigenous people that are making those changes, that are striving for for that uh, for that balance, um, and that that are really making uh, opportunities and education and all of these things uh, to better our people, and then bettering our people, we better the whole country.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you know, of course, uh, the arts are big in helping opening doors and and breaking mm-hmm. uh, things down for people to to see uh, different ways and think differently about things and, and open their eyes in, in a in a, a, a less confrontive way, I guess you might say than than in others. Uh, you yourself are, are an author. You have uh, you've produced a, a book of poetry, I believe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I've produced two books of poetry. The first was... way back in the day, um, and that was called This is a Small Northern Town. It was mm-hmm. about growing up in a racially divided mining town. And then my second book uh, was, it was a collaboration with my mother called Calling Down the Sky, and that was about her residential school experience. So as you see, you know it doesn't matter how far back you go or how forward you go, there's always that connecting story. There's always that, uh, that story of colonialism that undercurrents all of our experiences, but also our response to that our resilience to mm-hmm. that, our, our denial of having that take us down, because um, as women, as Indigenous women, we are the strongest. Uh, we are the ones that carry nations on our back. And so it's important that even if we fall, then we have to get back up. Mm. And so that's what a lot of, I think, my work in poetry uh, centers around, is the strength of our Indigenous
0: women. Now, speaking of both women and in the arts. Uh, what do you think it is that, from your experiences, both as an author, as a broadcaster, and as a woman, brings to hosting your program and allows you to, to uh, speak to your guests in a way to bring things out to help educate as well as entertain uh, when you're speaking with someone on your show?
1: Um well of course you know I'm very visibly indigenous uh you can't you can't mistake me for anything <laughs> but <laughs> um and I ca- and I speak from that experience as as a Cree woman uh living in this country we call Canada right now that brings a very specific experience it would be a different experience if I was a non-indigenous woman or a, a woman of color or uh uh somebody who lived in a different part of of the world uh this is a very specific experience that I speak from and can speak to uh, and then speak with people about, um, and so it's 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 something that um, um, that's important to me that people understand that this is this is the experience that that happens now to each and every one of us.
0: And since you've and been doing, it... sorry, go ahead.
1: And I think that's something that's that's very respected mm. with, with the people that I that I have on as guests on the show. There's an understanding, an implicit understanding, that this is the experience that we're speaking from and to.
0: You know, when you mentioned your your uh, the book that you did with your mom, calling down the sky about her her uh, residential school experience, uh, I'm sure that was in some ways an education for you as well. When when you heard her tell that story, both to you and then to be able to share that with uh, with both indi- other Indigenous and non Indigenous people. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, when, when you, you have uh, those stories come out, uh, what is it you're hearing back from people? I'm sure you get emails from people across the country when they listen in. Uh, what, what are the kind of things you're hearing back from, from both other indigenous and non-indigenous people?
1: Um, Well, in fact, I did not know about my mother's residential school experience Mm. or had even heard the word Mm. Indian Residential School until I was uh, uh, 17 Mm. um, when I had a teacher, uh, Mr. William Dumas, who became my Native Studies teacher, uh, the only Native Studies teacher I've ever had, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And he told me about it. And he so happened to be a... uh, He so happened to have gone to school with my mom, to the same residential school, And they were from the same community, so they shared that experience. And when he told me about it, um, I didn't know what he was talking about. So I went and asked my mom, and she didn't want to talk about it. But mm-hmm. like It was so deep. Sure. That shame was so deep mm-hmm. inside her that she could not speak the words. And it, wasn't be, it wouldn't be until I was almost in my 30s that she would finally share that, that story with me and that we'd come together and, and write it.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that, that, and she wouldn't be alone in that experience and and the shame and and the the, the desire to, to hide that and not talk about it, of course.
1: Certainly all of her sisters went to residential school. Much of our community uh, went, to, went to those schools. And so it was, it's a very dark and deep secret within many of our Indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, had irreparable, it caused irreparable damage to many of our communities, which we see now in the justice system. We see that in the, in the child welfare system. We see that uh, in the health systems. We see that in poverty levels. We see that even in governance level, that sickness that has been carried forward because of Indian residential schools. And that's something I think that can, most Canadians, non-Indigenous Canadians, don't quite understand that that trauma is very deep. And that trauma had wide-ranging effects. And it's a trauma that we're not going to be able to get out from underneath for another couple generations. When you think about Indian residential schools, it was 100 years. Mm-hmm. That was over 100 years yep. so uh, that we were under that system. And not just that system, right. Indian Act, a reserve system, all of these other systems that we were under, underneath, and they were just starting to come out from now. It's going to take generations to heal from that. Maybe we'll never heal from that. We yeah. don't know. Yes, we're true. We keep trying, right? We keep trying.
0: Uh, speaking of of healing, though, would you say that that this process that you went through with your mum and in writing this book was it was it of help? Was it of healing for her? As would you think?
1: Absolutely. I mean, she had never spoken about it before. Mm. This is a, something that she carried around with her for 50 years mm. um before she was able to talk about it. And 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 it wasn't all at once. It wasn't like, "blah, this mm-hmm. is what happened to me, now I'm better." Sure. It was it was a 5-year process that we yeah. underwent to talk about each and every piece of this 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 wound that uh that she bore. Um so Slowly, yes, there is healing. And I came from a place where I didn't understand my mother. I grew up not understanding her and felt like she didn't love me, like there was something wrong with me
0: mm.
1: because of the way she raised me in this sort of cold and, and uh you know, distant sort of way, but still cared for me. I mean she still fed me, she still brushed my hair, she still made sure I had breakfast, she still sewed my clothes. But there was no hugging, there was no love, there was no I love you, you're special, you're you're wonderful, you're smart. Because she never had that. Of
0: course. Yeah. So it
1: took me a really long time to understand her. And once, once I finally heard the story, and not only heard, but wrote about it, then I began to understand her. And I think it really deepened our relationship and deepened the understanding that we, that we, held, that we held for each other. And that space, we, became, we created that new space together to be together in.
0: That's, uh, that's very nice to hear. And, and it just, of course, speaks to the intergenerational uh, trauma that, uh, that the, the residential schools uh, perpetrated upon uh, our people. And sure. uh, it, it, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, unfortunately, Rosanna, we're going to have to wrap up our interview at this point in time. Oh. I wish we had more time, but uh, <laughs> that's going to have to be it for now. But, you know, it would be great to have you back on the show at, at, a, at a future date and uh, continue okay. this conversation.
1: Well, thank you so much for your uh, for uh, spending some time with me today.
0: Well, thank you very much, and uh, all the best and continued luck with uh, Unreserved and CBC. Take care. You too. Bye bye. That is Rosanna Dirschild. She was on the line from Winnipeg, and she, of course, is the host of Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. You can catch her weekly uh, doing her show, very much like this program, uh, with interviews of Indigenous people. And not that we focus entirely on Indigenous uh, people here, but uh, it's wonderful to know that Rosanna is doing that and has uh, has been able to uh, land that job at uh, CBC, and we wish her all the best. But don't go away. Please hear because we're going to come right back on Moment of Truth and more right after this. Uh, glad we got that sorted out. Thank you both for uh, for helping to resolve that for us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to get started, if that's okay with the two of you.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. And, of course, you could be listening on the Radio Player Canada app Anywhere across the country, download the app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and you could be listening on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. I'd like to welcome my next two guests that are on the show and also on the line from Winnipeg. Sheila Jones and Sheila North are on the line and they have been kind enough to join us to talk about a book the book is called "Let the People Speak: Oppression in a Time of Reconciliation," and uh, here's the reason they're both involved: is that uh, Sheila North is the former Grand Chief of uh, Mani- of the Manitoba Hua'kanoi Oka Makanak. Uh, or MKO, and served. <laughs> is that pretty good? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> and served as uh, chief communications officer for the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, and she is a Gemini-nominated CBC journalist, former CTV uh, journalist and documentarist, and also. Uh, Sheila Jones is a 12th-generation settler. She is a senior fellow with the Frontier Centre for the Publicity, Public rather Policy, uh, leading with the Treaty Annuity and Individual Empowerment Initiative. And she is an award-winning Canadian journalist, former CBC news editor, and author of several books, uh, including the one we're talking about today. Um, Sheila North, you wrote the, uh, the foreword uh, in, in the book, and I'd like to start there, if you don't mind, because I thought it was really interesting uh, about about how you uh, it took to to talking about your being raised in a northern uh, community um, in Manitoba. And, it, you know, of course, as you say, it shaped who you were. It also structured how you think. And, and I thought that was really interesting and also important to mention because I think that uh, the way indigenous people think uh, is and is, is part of the the thing that's been ongoing with issues re- revolving around indigenous people. Right, as we know, from from the day that uh, that settlers first landed on the shores of, of Turtle Island, um, there was there was a difference of thinking about a view of the land, for instance. And it seems that that thinking has has been ongoing. And it's part of the reason, even though we're now in the year of 2020 and we have uh we have a country of Canada that's built uh, a multinational and you know multi uh uh inclusive community but indigenous people in many ways are left out uh and there's lots of confusion around uh why can't the resol- the issues around Indigenous people be be resolved? In fact, you might say that we're seeing some of that play out right now in BC and other parts of Canada with some of these uh, some of the the situations that are ongoing uh, as as we try to resolve some of these uh, situations. Um, so the reason I, as I said, that whole thing about thinking. Um, you also say in here is that as natural, natural stewards of the land, ordinary indigenous citizens have the country's best interest at heart. And I really believe that as well. I believe that indigenous people, even though we see these situations that are developing and things that are ongoing, as, as we just uh, mentioned, with the Wet'suwet'en and uh, with the, the Mohawks at uh, uh what may seem as, 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 as one thing it, it it is that I believe Indigenous people have the best interest at heart, and when I m- m- say that, I mean the land and the country. It's not about uh, it's not about money. It's it's about what is best for the land uh, that that Indigenous people are standing up for.
2: Mm-hmm. No, you're right. You're absolutely right, and I think that that's what we're seeing playing out across Canada right now, and that was uh, a lot of. The point that I was trying to make with that is that uh, you know we're, we're in our own lands. We're not treated the same way that we we expect others to be treated. And you know, in spite of that, we have many resilient Indigenous people, and like my parents and I was all about to uh, to try and make a goal and make the best of situation. But sometimes the frustration spills out, and we see that, as you say, across the country with what's happening with the the uh, support demonstrations for certain predatory chiefs, and so you know this will this will keep playing out um, if if we don't uh, change in a big way, in big policy ways, uh, like uh, Sheila Jonah's book suggests um, in our country, and that's going to fall at the hands of the government, but also with the help of the public, which is also another reason why. I um, decided to help promote um, this book the way I, in the way I can with, with Sheila Jones, so we can you know chart a new path forward and start looking at uh, what's not working, and then start to um, work towards something that could look better. Mm. So that's a bigger idea that I really like about uh, Sheila Jones.
0: It, now, the book was launched uh, uh, late uh, last, last year, in uh, 2019, in Winnipeg. Um, uh, Sheila Jones, when, when you, you dedicate the book to Jean Allard, uh, and uh, talk about uh, him, him uh, being chained uh, to the statue of Louis Riel. And I believe that was about 30 years ago when you, you spoke to him about that.
3: Uh, that incident took place in 1994. Mm. Uh, yes, the um, uh, he was... Uh, Jean has long been um, a kind of a sharp-elbowed uh, Métis activist, and uh, he was part of um, pushing to get a statue of Louis Riel on the grounds of the Manitoba legislature, and he'd worked hard to get it there. But it was a kind of um, a tortured Riel, and some in the Métis community wanted a more um, button-down, bow-tied version of Louis uh, instead. And, but he protested by chaining himself to the uh, original statue. And during that time, he had lots of time to think about how, uh, what the issues were of poverty on reserves. And remember, 30 years ago, uh, a lot more of uh, status First Nations people lived on reserves, in, in many cases in grinding poverty and in, in unfortunate social conditions. It's, well, how do you fix this? And he came up with the idea of everybody or about 60% of Status First Nations people receive an annuity. That's part of the uh, historic treaties. And he said, well, what if we modernize that? It hasn't changed in 170 years. The Robinson-Huron and Superior treaties that were signed in 1850 uh, weren't in, were increased once in 1878 to $4 per person. The annuities across Canada have never increased again. So a five-dollar annuity for the historic uh, treaties one or two, for instance, is still five dollars, mm-hmm. and that was intended to be a livelihood support uh, for First Nations families and uh, some economic independence and autonomy. Well, five dollars um, a year uh, doesn't really represent that, neither represent what was intended as a means of sharing the prosperity of the land. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of modernizing annuity and and annuity is to increase the direct, um, uh, to share the prosperity of the land directly with the First Nations people of this country. And so $5 a year isn't going to do it. So uh, Sheila and I uh, both co-chair, the Modernized Annuity Working Group. And we are looking at this right now, how to modernize the annuity, what it would be, how it might roll out. And we've got a paper coming out before too long that's going to um, help start the conversation about this idea. And what makes this idea really interesting is it addresses some of the issues we're seeing on the land right now, Mm -hmm. where people feel they have no voice in Federal policy, um, and if you don't feel you have a voice, that's when you resort to blockades, civil disobedience, violent protest, those kinds of things. So, if you to empower people to have their voices heard, to to know that their voices are being heard, that's part of what we're looking at as well. And the book lets people speak is to explain how we got to where we are right now and how do we address this issue of empowering First Nations people to make sure their voices are heard.
0: And I believe uh, the book does a very good job of, of doing that, bringing us up to speed in terms of uh, how we got here. And, of course, the other thing that it does, and, and you know, it's it's so hard to... Uh, as I'm sure you both know, it's so hard to to say one thing is going to answer all the questions for us about the ongoing issues. But it, but this book does a very good job of looking at the Department of Indian Affairs and how it has evolved over time and its influence and 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 uh, how it has worked uh, and changed over a decades. Uh, and also the the people involved at those times and the things that have been tried to to uh, be implemented uh, you know either either for better or worse uh, depending on how how you you would look at that and of course um, it, it really does highlight many of the uh, many of the the things that have happened over the last 30 forty years uh, and bringing us right up to date um, even with the split of Indian affairs in the last year or so and You know it's really interesting because, uh, as as you both know, uh, and 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 Sheila uh, Jones, you just pointed this out. uh, Indigenous people have this. uh, The 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 everyday indigenous person has no power. They're powerless. Uh, And and it's really interesting that you point that out. That even the organizations that speak on behalf of indigenous people to the government, the the normal everyday Indigenous person doesn't have any say in how they go about what they do. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. I also thought it was really interesting, of course, in how you point out how the uh, the Department of Indian Affairs is set up uh, and how you uh, equate it to uh, this, uh, this enterprise and this super province. Uh, yes,
3: actually, I think that's... Uh, I was trying to find a way... describe this vast, vast system that delivers uh, programs and services for uh, Indigenous people across the country um, in a way that people could relate to. And um, it struck me that Indigenous Affairs, it's two government departments now, plus about 30 federal departments and agencies that also uh, deliver programs and services for Indigenous people across the country uh, collectively uh, with a budget of roughly about $21 billion a year. A bit, and it's going up. There's been new announcements made just recently of proposed additional funding. And uh, this vast department has jurisdictional reach across 90% of the country. However, um, the uh, unlike every other Federal government department, the Indigenous Affairs—let's call it Indigenous Affairs—plus mm-hmm. collectively
2: yep.
3: um, has controls just about every aspect of First Nations life, and she Sheila North can speak to that in in a moment. Um, but the the this vast enterprise uh, that controls so much of the lives, especially people living in First Nations communities, controls so much of their lives. Yet there is not A single person elected by ordinary First Nations people to represent their interests. And this would be like, um, for instance, as if New Brunswick or Saskatchewan was run by a government department in Ottawa without them having any say or any mechanism for having a say at all. And we would consider that an appalling Mm. um, democratic affront. So, so when you look at the controls that um, the Indigenous Affairs Plus has over, over the people that they govern, it's all top-down. So, Sheila, maybe you could address, um, address the controls on in First Nations communities, what they're dealing
2: with. Right, yes. Um, well, they have a massive amount of control in, in First Nations. And um, I've even heard people say from birth to death, that uh, the this department has control over Indigenous people in this country, and yet it doesn't work both ways. And it's no wonder we're we're seeing the some of the aggression happening. Um, you know, in, in trying people trying to um, assert their sovereignty because uh, Indigenous people are made to feel like children in this in this country. And we have even heard that same sort of sentiment, I guess, from the Alberta Premier recently, saying that the federal government treats them like children now. They treated me more like children, as Indigenous people. And uh, Sheila explains, and and even in the book, it talks about how this actually happened, how this came to be. And now, um, even though that there's so much, it seems like there's so, so much money now being poured into the Indigenous affairs, how much does, it actually reached the community. Yeah. Um, I've heard another story that um, here in Manitoba there's a community, a First Nations community, remote, remote isolated community uh, that has about 1,500 people and they get resources annually from the federal government for about five, enough for 500 people. And the Indigenous community is expected to take care of all the infrastructure and all the needs of the community with that. So that's like a third of what they need. And, and so this is the reality of Indigenous people in this country. That's why you see a lot of frustration. There's been a lot of successes. Um, I think, there's a lot of frustration that have caught on and, and figured out the system and are making it work for their communities and their people. Uh, but there are many who don't live in um, resource-rich areas or, or have access to, you know, bigger markets to be able to be self-sustaining the way they want to be. And so this creates that dependency in a vacuum to basically beg from the federal government to, uh, for sustenance. And that's, that's not good. Like, there, there's poverty. Uh, there's trauma that's caused from living in poverty. And so people um, deserve much more than they have. And, and unfortunately, the way this system with the Indigenous Affairs is set up it's it's not allowing um, these communities and these people to flourish. So maybe any Canadian must to flourish in this country, and um, that's that's the harsh reality. Um, so when people say that you know Indigenous people get free money, free, mm. free people think that we get free cars and free education, <laughs> free housing and all that stuff. Um, in some level, there is some of that, but it ultimately, you know. Indigenous people, for the most part, do not own their homes in communities. Okay. And so, and at any time, they can be kicked out for, for whatever reason, you know? And th- there is so much learning left to do in our country, and I think we all have to hunker down and figure this out because neither of Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities are leaving, and so we have to figure out a way, a new path forward to coexist and share the land as
0: our ancestors, our ancestors told us to do. Yeah, I'd like to jump in. I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto and at 95.7 in Ottawa. And my guests on the line are Sheila Jones along with First Nations leader Sheila North. And they are uh, calling for a revolutionary change in the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians and want to empower First Nations families through modernizing treaty annuities. And details... Uh, uh, of which uh, most Canadians are unaware, and we were just talking about that a little bit. And the call comes out of this book uh, from Sheila Jones with a foreword by Sheila North, Let the People Speak, Oppression in a Time of Reconciliation. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting, uh, Sheila North, that you just mentioned uh, free, about that idea of of Canadians think it's, you know, getting everything for free. And and even that uh, that comment is... You know, uh, is is something that people don't understand because they don't understand what the treaties uh, meant and what they stand for, and and all mm-hmm. about the the land and the resources that they got in exchange uh, uh, for those treaties. Uh, we could go on and on about this. Of course, we don't have much time left, so I want to move on to talk about <laughs> the the annuity side of things because that again is is what the book is is leading up to and wants to talk about in terms of. Uh, of Of why this would be a way of both empowering uh, the everyday indigenous person as well as bringing these these annuities up to date to allow uh, people to uh, to have some support uh, financially uh, through and sharing as you pointed out uh, sharing the resources and the wealth from from uh, this country called canada uh, uh, sheila jones can you can you address the the idea of of uh, of of the annuities and and how that how you see that that uh, moving forward.
3: Okay, well, this idea got started. We talked touched on this a bit earlier with Jean Allard, and he and I and some others um, were working on this about oh, 2002, two thousand and two two thousand two thousand and five um, with the Treaty Annuity Working Group, is a special committee of the Social Planning Council of Winnipeg. And at that time, our group of Indigenous and non Indigenous um, people. Uh, coming together to see what, how could this work? Does it make sense? We came up with uh, criteria that uh, we hoped would be the the basis for this kind of change. And one would be that the annuity uh, be increased and somehow tied to the land. That that was important. That the annuity be extended to all Status First Nations people across the country equally, and that it be paid directly to uh, First Nations people, um, without it going through uh, Indigenous Affairs or Band Council, it would be paid directly to the people. Um, and that uh, at the time we thought it should be revenue neutral. Uh, we're kind of not sure about that part of it now. But so what we built with the modernized annuity working group now is moving on those same principles of, again, um, tying the uh, annuity to sharing the prosperity of the land. So you can say at the time, uh, 170 years ago or 300 years ago, when the first European settlers arrived and, and first people uh, were negotiating how, what kind of relationship we were going to have, that um, that first people could make way for um, the uh, settlers and share the land. We all benefited if, um, if the first people made, way, made room for the settlers, and that the first people benefited by sharing the prosperity the settlers um, built with what they built, their development, that kind of thing. And that was what the annuities were actually intended for at the beginning, but it never evolved. They never, um, even though the Robinson-Huron and Superior uh, Treaties had a built-in escalator clause, in other words, an automatic for escalating, increasing the annuity payments based on prosperity generated by mining, logging, fishing, that kind of thing. It never happened. No mechanism was ever set up. And that's 170 years ago. Uh, There should have been a mechanism for increasing the annuities, for modernizing them. That never happened. So our group is bravely doing it now.
0: Wow, I I did not know that that was built in. Uh, that was one thing I missed, uh, I guess, when I was reading. Uh, that that was that was something that was built in and should have been happening. Uh, so, would this be retroactive for those people? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and I, what
3: we what we're looking at, what our group is looking at, and we've got some we've got a marvelous team of of uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous men and women, um, uh, you know, representing First People and Settlers. And it's like, you know, when you and I get together and we talk, we're talking as starting a relationship anew. Mm. You know, like, mm. I can represent settlers because, you know, my family's been here a very long time. And I think at this point, I have roughly 10 million um, blood relatives in Canada, cousins, mm-hmm. That's a lot of people.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> she brags about and then,
2: that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I
3: do. <laughs> <laughs> and Sheila is she she representing the first people. So we're talking about, let's start a new relationship. Let's not try to fix everything from the past, or uh, because in a way, you get really bogged down. No. Um, there's been a lot of painful issues Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. We don't forget about those, but we have to start somewhere. So we start together as talking to each other as equals and how we are going to share. And in a way, this is an issue for all Canadians, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, because the reconciliation is going to happen.
0: Uh, What I would like to ask then is, uh, as we wrap this up, is... Um, if we're thinking about uh, you know starting this afresh and starting new and looking at this with the input of as you pointed out both indigenous and non-indigenous Canadians uh, and some of your ten million relatives that you pointed out earlier, um, uh, what what I'm wondering about is how how do we? It's not going to just depend, of course, on on. Uh, Canadians, everyday Canadians, the government and Indian Affairs is going to have something to say about this. And I'm, I'm wondering, at this point in time, what is your sense of, of how they are reacting to this idea? If, you have uh, had any, if you've had any input at all from them. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah a lot of the response we've had uh, has been, um, yes, we need to do something. And one of the um, comments is, there's nothing else on the table. There are no new ideas being put forward, and this is something that people are quite receptive to because it helps lay everything out in a in a kind of an even handed manner there's we 're not being angry or anything. this is about coming together and um, and finding a way to to talk to each other um, meaningfully and because there's so much support for reconciliation across the country, people really do are looking for some way. To help, even if they don't quite know what it is they're supposed to do. So I would recommend people read the book.
2: Mm-hmm. There's some
3: really good ideas in there. And if we can develop a shared understanding, that's a really good point to build from a base where we have a shared understanding.
0: Right, of course. And uh, people can pick the book up where? Whereabouts can they find it?
3: Oh, chapters mm-hmm. or any fine bookstore across Canada.
0: Great. Uh, uh, Sheila North. Um, uh, would you like to add anything to what Sheila was just saying there?
2: No, I think that uh, she's covered it all. And this is a very practical and uh, concrete way to start to look at that path forward, because we know the old way is not working. We know that nothing is really changing in the Indigenous community, no matter how many flowery words um, politicians use these days, um, actually, particularly this. Liberal government. I know that they have their intentions and I know that and some would disagree probably uh, but at the same time we're all human beings and I think that um, one of the biggest problems we're seeing when we see broken promises is that um, we're not held accountable by the larger public to carry out these kinds of bold initiatives and we have to as Canadians now find a way to support the movement, to and the poverty of, of Indigenous people and the marginalization of them. And, um, and as I think Sheila pointed out earlier, um, you know, policymakers and uh, leaders, uh, politicians, governments can't make those big changes without the supportive people, and so we have to take it back down to the level of, of educating each other and educating ourselves on what's ha- what has happened, how did we get here? and what can we do to start to reverse the trend because we don't have to look very far to to see the, the living conditions of a lot of Indigenous people who don't deserve the life that they have, um, especially coming from their own lands. So, we have to find a practical step forward, and right now, what we're seeing, the responses from the government and even responses from opposition is not working. It's never gonna work, and we have to find a path forward together as as uh, people of Canada, both indigenous and non indigenous. So this is one practical way to look at making that enormous task down to practical level. So um, I'm sure that there are a lot of other good ideas, but this is definitely one that I, that I would say is worth looking at.
0: Right, absolutely. I would agree with that. Uh, I uh, I want to thank you for sending me the copy so I could prepare myself for the interview. And I would recommend uh, everyone pick up a copy of "Let the People Speak: Oppression in a Time of Reconciliation" by Sheila Jones, and a forward by uh, Sheila North. Uh, the other thing that we didn't get a, a chance to talk about is is uh, is how that would, of course, change if this were come if were to come into effect in terms of the upgraded annuities and and how that would affect uh, both the Indigenous Affairs Department uh and 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 how the monies would be would be flowing and now as you pointed out uh, give, empower the, the everyday indigenous person, but also I liked uh, what you were saying about how this would also help empower women, and indigenous women specifically, and girls, and help them get out of, uh, of poverty, and help uh, to put some power back into their hands, and, and actually give the everyday person, the indigenous person, some power to speak uh, from the gra- from the bottom up and re- instead of all this top heavy uh, 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 information and direction coming from from the top. So Uh, Ladies, thank you, uh, Chimigwech and and, and Anyawa, for for joining us on the show to to share this information, and we wish you all the best with it.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Bye, Sheila. Bye, Sheila. (laughs) (laughs)
0: You've been listening to Sheila Jones and uh, Sheila North uh, on our show today with uh, talking about uh, Let the People Speak, Oppression in a Time of Reconciliation. It is a book that just got launched uh, late in uh, uh, 2019. You can pick one up at your local bookstore. I recommend everyone pick it up and have a look. Thank you, and uh, don't go away. We're going to come right back with a short interview from our Ottawa correspondent. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We're going to pass it over now to our Ottawa news person, Caroline O'Neill. She has a short interview with Paul Manley in Ottawa. Let's give it a listen.
4: We have some big news coming out of time this morning. I'd love to hear what your reaction is to that.
5: Um, well, I think, um, you know, I'm hoping that uh, that the, that, uh, this action by the police is not gonna trigger um a reaction and I hope that the police are are respectful and peaceful in the way that they're that they're doing this. I've I've been a little bit concerned about it because uh I know what's happened in, in uh Caledonia and Ipperwash in the past and so I think that the OPP has learned from those situations, so um yeah. I was hoping that the, that there would be a different outcome.
4: What was the outcome that you were hoping for?
5: Well, I was hoping that, that uh, we would see, uh, you know, a proper pullback. I don't know exactly what's going on in Witsoul territory right now. I know I've been to the Community Industry Safety Office, and it's uh, that detachment is a Really well established detachment, like double wide ACO trailers, you know, for offices, mess hall, um, accommodation. Uh, So it's, you know, I don't know if they've removed that detachment or not. There's talk about them moving the trailers out of there, but I'm not sure. I can't confirm whether that's happened or not. Um, It's and so, yeah, I think it'd be good to have all of that.
4: Do you, do you agree with the Prime Minister's orders to have the injunctions on Tandanaiga and what's wetting upheld?
5: Um, you know, the, the Prime Minister wants to, to see these blockades come to an end. And I think that pretty much everybody would like to see the blockades come to an end, inclu- including people who are standing around out in the cold. At these blockades, I think that what people want to see is that uh, there's a respectful relationship uh, with First Nations, and the problem is that you know now the the Prime Minister wants or the wants his cabinet mem- members to meet with uh, Wet'suwet'en, with and this is something that's been called for you know more than a month ago, right? So. A month ago, I asked the prime minister to go and and uh, meet with her, the hereditary chiefs of Wet'suwet'en and that was the time to go and have those meetings before the RCMP did their raise. And I went to the territory and and um, traveled around with uh, Chief Namaks, who's uh, one of the hereditary chiefs, um, listened to him for several days, to, you know, to get a uh, the background on the uh, Wet'suwet'en traditional laws and their traditional system and what they were looking for in you know, in this relationship. And they wanted the federal government to come to the table and to talk to them before the raid took place. And I went to the detachment in Smithers and I met with the detachment commander there and I took uh, Chief Namluks with me to the community industry safety office, which is 29 kilometres off of the highway outside of Houston along the Morris... Uh, Forest, uh service road and sat down with them there and uh, you know they said as long as as there's negotiations going on that they weren't going to enforce the injunction the coastal gas link injunction so um, the the time to go and meet with with and leadership was a month ago you know not after the police have come in uh, with snipers and and uh, a paramilitarized force to uh, uh, forcefully evict uh, the camps out there, and people, you know, asserting their sovereignty over their territory. So that's, you know, the unfortunate problem with this whole situation is that it was uh, avoidable, uh, and then the the reaction to it was predictable. Like the First Nations across Canada. Um, Indigenous people across Canada are going to stand with other indigenous people when, when they're, they're dealing with uh, this colonial system that, uh, you know enforces uh, projects that, that people don't want. The, the other thing that you know wasn't well understood about the situation with Suet is that they had pr- proposed a couple of other options for the pipeline. One of which was an established route uh, with another pipeline running along it, and and uh, you know I've got the documents, I've got the map that shows where these other routes were proposed, and uh, I've got the response from Coastal GasLink that said, you know, it's going to add another hundred kilometers of pipe, it comes close to other communities, uh, it's going to cost us extra money and extra time, <clears throat> so why not? You know have 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 the pipeline run down an industrial route somewhere that's already been industrialized and uh has another pipeline on it um that would have made a lot more sense rather than running it right down the Queese trail which is uh you know thousands of years old has burial grounds on it has archaeological sites on it is a pristine wilderness that's used for hunting gathering trapping and and cultural training for the young people of the witsuden um, and I've seen video of what's, what's happened to that trail and the pipeline path goes right down along the trail and then they've covered over the trail with wood to try to preserve the trail. I mean, that's just uh, um, a travesty. It's ridiculous. And you see that the, the um, pipeline companies will say, well, we want to avoid too much disruption in, in areas where there's communities, etc. So they thus. One of the excuses for not following the existing uh, uh, pipeline route, when it's already, you know, a pipeline right-of-way, and it would it would have been acceptable uh, acceptable to um, with And you know, the Unistoten Camp has been there for for ten years. The uh, uh, healing center's been there for five years. So nobody should be surprised that there was opposition that was. Uh, you know, well-entrenched opposition and, and uh, people out there asserting their sovereignty over their traditional territories.
4: One of the things that you mentioned as well was the need for a respectful relationship with Indigenous peoples. And certainly in the first term that we saw with uh, the Liberal government, reconciliation was something that was mentioned a lot. Do you think that this current government is engaging in a respectful relationship with Indigenous peoples? Well,
5: I think that it's, in some cases, They are. I think that there's good work going on, but I think in in cases of these um, big industrial extractive um, processes and projects, that uh, it's not a respectful relationship. And I think, you know, we we saw with Site C that 14 of the First Nations were opposed to the Site C dam, and then after, you know, it was uh, approved by the regulator and looked like it was a foregone conclusion, and then twelve of them decided that they were gonna sign on to benefits agreements because it's gonna happen anyway. And um you know, with uh with the sign on for, for different First Nations along the coastal gas link route, I was reading about one of the First Nations, one of the Wet'suwet'en bands, um, you know, three hundred members, seventy percent of them voted against the project. And then the band council was split uh three to three and it was the the chief that cast the deciding vote and he said it was the hardest decision of his life, cast his, his vote to to um accept the project and the benefits agreement. And then that benefits agreement says, you know, that they have to uh, uh do their, their best to make sure that the the band members don't speak out against the project, that don't get in that they don't get involved in anti pipeline campaigns uh including on social media, so how does you know how are they supposed to enforce that? you know that's an issue of freedom of, of speech, freedom of association
4: Now there are also solidarity actions happening across the country, and that does include today and right near your office on Parliament Hill, there's a rally standing in support with what's when right now. Will you be out there with any of your colleagues?
5: Yeah, I'm going to step out there after this interview
4: do you know of any other members of parliament or leaders who are going to be heading over as well?
5: Uh, I'm not sure yeah
4: now, in some news that really contrasts to what's happening over at Tindinaga, we there's some big news about the tech frontier project. What's your reaction to that?
5: Well, I think that that's positive you know I think that the tech frontier is something we've been speaking out against, and again, in these cases uh you know they say that they've they've got all the first nations on side with it but one of the chiefs who's been fighting this from um at first nation they've, they've been fighting these projects for for decades uh spending millions of dollars in the court system and the, the chief said that you know the regulator has never turned down one of these projects and so uh he thought Better to sign on to the benefits agreement, get some money for his community. You know, the, these communities have been struggling with poverty since colonization. Get some money for the community and try to mitigate the damage as much as possible. And then, uh, you know, the north of the border in, in uh, the Northwest Territories, those First Nations weren't part of the environmental assessment. They're all downstream from this project. and are going to deal with the effects of, of uh, you know, poisoning in the, the river. Um, they're going to deal with all the, the detrimental environmental effects, and, and it's going to affect their ability to fish and hunt and, and everything else. And, and they were uh, opposed to it. Like Smith, Smith Landing, uh, Chief Cheesy was very much opposed to it and wasn't consulted on the project at all, but they are going to be one of the most affected First Nations.
4: And given everything that is happening today across the country and some different projects moving in some very different directions, what do you think needs to happen next?
5: Well, I think that uh, if, if we're going to implement the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, that has to move forward. And if we're going to talk about free, prior, and informed consent, then we need to determine what that means. And we also, if we're talking about about um, self-governance. You know, we can't have this kind of divide-and-conquer approach where uh, the the um, companies are signing benefits agreements with elected uh, band chiefs and, and councils when there's a hereditary system that has survived colonization, as in the case with the Wet'suwet'en, It's up to the Wet'suwet'en people to determine uh, their governance structures and, and how they're going to Move forward in their negotiation with and you, you know, with the federal government and with the provincial government. It's been 23 years since the Delgamuuk decision, and the courts had had batted it back to the federal and provincial government and said, "You need to, you know, work out what the the rights and title are for the Wet'suwet'en people," and that that process hasn't taken place properly. So. Those processes need to take place we need to open up the space for uh, First Nations to determine their self-governance structures so that you know if there are projects that need negotiation with uh, First Nations that that there's a clear determination of, of who's negotiating that and um, how that comes together right So that's uh, I think key. If we're going to have a respectful nation-to-nation relationship and negotiation, then then we have to have have the uh, time and space for uh, First Nations to develop their their own self-government structures.
0: I also want to say Nyawa, Migwech, Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, Migwech, and thanks for listening.